Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos. All right, everybody, I hope you saw the, um, noticed the new intro on the video and some, you know, cosmetic changes and things with the channel and with my space here. And all of that, I'm pretty much done with all of the rebranding that I've been doing. And so uh, that's now happened, and that's good uh, for those of you who care. <laughs> and also, of course, I want to um, put in a quick before we get into the questions plug for the podcast this week. I had a wonderful chat with a woman named Julie Bogart, who is a critical thinking educator, and amongst other things, she teaches other things and talks about other things. And we had a wonderful talk about this, that, the other thing revolving around the teaching of and uh, subject of critical thinking and, and cults and belief and faith and all kinds of interesting stuff. So I really hope you guys will check that out. I, you know, I, I don't put clickbaity titles on my videos. At least I, I'm not good at it. I don't try to, you know, be that guy. Um, so I called it teaching critical thinking. And of course, everybody goes, oh, well, that's boring. I don't want to know anything about that. You know, maybe you guys could help me out with that. If you have uh, ideas for titles of videos that have more appeal to people or that might be sexier or something, I'm more than happy to hear suggestions along those lines. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I do hope you guys will check that podcast out. And of course, our show this week, our live show uh, 10 Things About Cults. We had some fun talking about uh, some things with that and some interesting calls that came in. So I got, I hope you guys will check that show out as well. Mel made a uh, reappearance this week. So we had some fun with that. All right. So um, let's see. Any other updates? Not really. Just things moving right along. And so let's go ahead and get to your questions. DK. When I was still relatively new to Scientology, I was put on the e-meter and asked many questions, including, are you reasonable? And I answered, of course, who wouldn't be? To my surprise, she got all weird as if I had murdered someone. She then showed me Hubbard's definition of reasonable. And as I recall, it was absurd and completely contrary to what you might think. What is the Hubbard made-up definition of reasonable? What purpose does it serve? And what procedure was done on me? All right, DK, thank you very much for this question. And you probably were receiving what's called an A to J interview. And this is a kind of interview that gets done to check for any kind of PTS type A to J, or a, not PTS, but a to J types, right? These are, the, these are the categories of people that Scientology does not want. They don't, and they, and they interview and they check and it's sort of a gatekeeping process or, you know, to check and make sure you aren't a criminal, that you don't have antagonistic family, that you're not there to investigate Scientology for the media or for the courts, that you're not an officer of the court or something like that. They have a whole bunch of questions that they ask that are meant to weed out potential trouble sources or bad apples or people who they know aren't going to go along with the party line so well. And being reasonable is one of those points according to the way Scientology thinks of this. Now, this is a fun one to answer because this is one of those points of loaded language. This is a control mechanism. You can use language to communicate, to get ideas across to people, but you can also use language in a curvy way to control people, to bend their minds, to think about things a particular way. 
And words bias us, words influence us, and words can have a great deal to do with how we go about thinking about things. Um, You know, you can think about this a little bit, come up with tons of examples, but loaded language is not just taking a word and giving it a new definition. It's giving it a new definition in such a way that you're entering some curves, some spins, some twists, some it's loaded. You're, you're now, you know, ready to go, ready to rock with this word. It's, it means something significant and it can be weaponized. It can be used in a way to control, um, inhibit behavior, control behavior, stop behavior, cause behavior. Lots of things you can do with words and with concepts. So that kind of being the, the, the short gist on loaded language, this word reasonable or reasonableness is defined in Scientology. It's a loaded word. And I'm going to give you the definition of it here, and we're going to go over this. It has a lot to do with Hubbard's intent to get Scientologists in a frame of mind that they are going to make things go right And they are not going to put up with any excuses, justifications, or rationale as to why it shouldn't be that way. In other words, there won't be any reasons why this task, job, whatever, can't get done, cannot be accomplished. You are going to get it done. And I'm not going to hear any reasons why it's not going to get done. And if you try to offer me those reasons, you're being reasonable. Okay, let's go over what Hubbard says. Reasonableness. This is re- I'm reading to you from the actual administrative dictionary of Scientology right now. Illogic occurs when one or more data is misplaced into the wrong body of data for it. Okay, here he's 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 talking here in the context that this quote comes from is from the data series. And this is a series of policy letters Hubbard wrote about the subject of logic and reason and reasonability and, and, and thinking things through. So he, there's a lot of twists in the data series, and this is one of the biggest ones. So here he's defining illogic. He's saying illogic happens, illogical thought, in other words, wrong ideas, occur when one or more data is misplaced into the wrong body of data for it. An example would be, Los Angeles smog is growing worse, so we find New York. That doesn't make any sense, right? Doesn't, doesn't fit. If the smog in L.A. is bad, why would you find New York? That's illogical. Or, I am sorry, madame, but you cannot travel first class on a third class passport, doesn't make sense, right? These are statements that Hubbard is putting forward as nonsensical. They're illogical. Then he says, humanoid response, and he refers to people as humanoids. It's a, it's a degrading term Hubbard uses to talk about people. Humanoid response to such displacements is to be reasonable. A new false datum is dreamed up and put into the body of data to explain why that datum is included. In the smog one, it could be dreamed up that New York's exports or imports were causing L.A. smog. In the train one, it could be inserted that in that country, passports were used instead of tickets. 
right? In other words, you could dream up an idea to make it make sense. Now, this is something that everybody does all the time, right? We hear something that doesn't make sense. It makes us a little, this is called cognitive dissonance, right? It doesn't make sense. You go, well, that doesn't make sense. But before you're even thinking it doesn't make sense, even at a sort of a subconscious level, you're dreaming up or inserting information into it to make it make sense. And you don't even have to think about it. Your brain just does this. And you got to watch it and catch it. That's why critical thinking is a discipline and not just a skill set. So, um, so faulty explanations is another example or definition for reasonable in Scientology. It's, a, it's an accurate statement of something people do, but then Hubbard calls it being reasonable. He degrades it. He says that's, a, that's illogical thinking, and the people who do that, who engage in that, are being reasonable. They are dreaming up reasons why something makes sense rather than just looking at the fact that it doesn't make sense. Um, and here is another, and here is a final sort of statement on this, and this is from a Sea Org reference. This is from a flag order. So here's what Hubbard tells the Sea Org about this. He says, an objective can always be achieved. Most usually when it is not being achieved, the person is finding counterintention in the environment which coincides with his own. This is reasonableness. And his attention becomes directed to his own counterintention rather than to his objective. Now, this is completely how Hubbard thinks about things. And this is why Scientology is a destructive cult, is because it's always blaming the individuals involved no matter what the reason is for failure in achieving an objective. There could be all kinds of very good reasons why you cannot achieve something or get something done, but Hubbard doesn't agree. He says straight up, an objective can always be achieved, and if it's not being achieved, you, the one not achieving it, are being reasonable. You are finding excuses and reasons why this can't be done because you already think it can't be done and now you're just looking for an excuse and that's being reasonable okay so i think i've think i've defined that pretty well so when people come into scientology if they have this reasonable idea that everything has a reason and makes sense and is justifiable they're going to want to know about that because they're going to think you're you know a little illogical a little bit nutty and um Anyway, and that's kind of what goes along with that. A akin to this also is um, being um, uh, fair, like, like, like uh, open-minded. Sorry, that's it, open-minded. That's another question you might be asked in a similar vein, is are you coming here with an open mind with no personal hopes or desires for improvement? And you might say, well, yeah, of course I'm open-minded. I, I, you know, I'm not closed-minded. And again, in Scientology, this is a bad thing. Oh, no, 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 you cannot be open-minded coming into this group. We want you to have personal hopes and desires for change or improvement. And if you do not have those, and if you come in here with this, oh, I'll just see what happens kind of attitude, Scientology doesn't really want you around. 
They want you sold on the idea that you're going to do this class or you're going to do this auditing and it's going to make a big, serious change for you. And if you don't go in with that attitude, they're not really so interested in you. And this is one of those points I bring up because it's kind of important. to It's a weeding out. It's one of the reasons people don't make it in Scientology, but it also is priming. It's, it's, it's getting the people. It's filtering out only those people that you really want because they are conable. They are more invested. They are more emotionally invested in the, in the process from the very beginning. That's what they want. They want somebody who's hooked. Not somebody who's coming in going, eh, I'm just here to look around and see what you got. Nah, they don't want that guy. So that's the purpose of those kind of interviews. And there you go. Nick, in your opinion, how much should the average person know about cults? At what age would this knowledge be appropriate to introduce? In a perfect world, should there be introductory information about cults and cultic thinking in the social studies curriculum on a high school level? Or is it too complicated or too abstract for a young person without the experience of independent living? Thank you for this question, Nick. I very, very, very strongly believe that children can and should be educated about coercive control. Not necessarily about cults, but cults, of course, are an offspring or an offshoot of coercive control. And if children are taught, that it's not just a one-off, that you can get bullied and you can get harassed, you can get beaten up, and that happens, and that's a one single incident, but that there can be a repeating pattern of this behavior, that it can be underhanded, that it can be covert, that it can be slyly done to avoid the teachers, to avoid any other attention. The idea that you need to be isolated in order to be bullied and then manipulate it to go along with it, to not tell about it, to keep it to yourself. That kind of controlling activity or behavior is coercive control. And children should absolutely be taught about that. And from that will come the understanding later that, oh, coercive control can happen in groups, can happen with an individual, and they will then have the life experience because people will try to pull that crap on them. Everybody experiences this at one time or another. People lie. People try to deceive you. People try to con you. We've all had it happen to us. And if you're taught early on that this kind of behavior, the red flags of this kind of behavior, and know what to look for and what to watch for, then you'll be deceived a lot less often. Or at least that's the hope. Right. The, 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 the real, you know, the thing that makes all bets off on this is our emotions. Our emotions are not subject to our logic and reasoning. And so our emotions can carry us on a tide of hope and change and desire and, you know, euphoria and all of that. And all the logic and learning and everything we do just goes right out the window if something feels good or feels right and that kind of thing. So I think a key, 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 key part of teaching this is also teaching what our emotions are all about and how they can carry us away and how we can lose control because of our emotions. The children are not taught really not taught much about this at all. And there's, you know, a lot of good reasons why it's really hard to teach. And it's a little, you know, difficult to define exactly what these things are, you know, uh, and how to go about, you know, teaching kids this. It can be controversial. But I believe it should be done. And I think by teaching about emotion and emotional intelligence and teaching about coercion and coercive control and the fact that these things are real and they exist, 
This is part of our behavior. This is extremist behavior. It's off the rails behavior, but it happens every day to, you know, to lots and lots of people. I think that's the approach that should be used with kids that will get the most bang for the buck because you've only got so much time to teach them. You've only got so much of their attention and they're only going to retain so much. So this is the kind of lesson plan that I think needs to be repeated over and over and over again through the years. And it can become something that is taught with more granularity or more specifics, you know, more, more exactly fine-tuned. So by the time you're at a high school or college level, maybe you're teaching, you know, slightly better or more advanced knowledge of this than maybe you, you could introduce it at like a sixth grade level, something like that, right? Start introducing these concepts of, of emotion and reason and, and what are these things and where do they happen and how do they happen and that kind of thing, right? Um, I think there's lots of ways to approach this and teach it. And I do believe that these skill sets that I'm talking about right now or these knowledge sets are absolutely vital for children of any culture, any place in the world to learn about. I do. So, because um, these are things that will help teach independent thinking and will help get a kid squared away on what is and isn't moral behavior, what is and isn't acceptable society, you know, social behavior. There's a lot to this, right? There's a lot that goes into this. And it's not just enough to teach about bullying. Um, the, the coercive control element is, is important, right? This repeating pattern the isolation, manipulation, and control, the fact that there are these, you know, psychological mechanisms, that's, you know, we don't need to be teaching seventh graders all about, you know, cognitive dissonance and motivated reasoning and, and neurotransmitters and all that. We don't need to go anywhere near that stuff in order to give lots of examples and maybe model good examples of good behavior with this kind of thing. Um, at least in the current system, I think that's how it might be best done. I think ideally each individual student would be um, sort of taught, you know, at their level individually. I think you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck that way. But it's awful, awful, awful hard to run a production assembly line of education like we do right now with public education. Uh, well, with all education, really, in terms of classwork. Anyway, I just don't know that, you know, that, that those, it's not ideal is all I'm trying to say. The, the way we teach kids is, is, is not great. And I, I, I'd like to see a lot of improvements in that in general. But as far as subject matter, I mean, I know, you know, there's a thing where, you know, I'll just say, I know every profession feels their profession super important. And this topic is super, super important. And kids need to know. And I, I know, I know that everybody kind of says that. So, of course, I would, too. But notice I'm not talking about teaching about cults. I'm talking about coercive control. And I think there's a big, big difference there. And I think that teaching about that is the thing that's going to um, sort of armor up our future generations to kind of at least have some awareness and some bells going off when somebody is trying to, you know, control them. There you go. John O. Nolan. Could you please explain who David Mayo was and his place in Scientology's history? For those interested in Scientology, he's a name that comes up a bit. I've watched briefly a few of his lectures from years ago, and he seemed intelligent and charismatic, a potential leader, I'd say. Well, Johnny, you're absolutely right. David Mayo was somebody who was very high up in the organization. In fact, in the 1970s, he was one of the top trained people on the entire planet 
So much so that he was in the Sea Org, he was in L. Ron Hubbard's inner circle, and he was being groomed to become the next technical leader of Scientology after L. Ron Hubbard passed. It's the only time I've ever seen any preparation or work done of any kind in the world of Scientology for when Hubbard wasn't going to be around anymore. And apparently he was Hubbard's handpicked successor. Now, apparently this is data from David Mayo, who spoke about this at length after he was roundly kicked out of the church by David Miscavige, uh, who uh, put together a whole package of nonsense about David Mayo and sent it up to Miscavige, and, or sorry, sent it up to Hubbard. And Hubbard was convinced that David Mayo had gone rogue, gone bad, and then he would become a bad apple, and he and he wrote this whole issue. You can look it up online. It's called "The Story of a Squirrel," and that is specifically written about David Mayo. And that was his sort of declare and kick out, you know, big iron boot out of Scientology for all the years that he worked uh, with and alongside L. Ron Hubbard, developing tech for Hubbard for Scientology. A lot of the upper bridge stuff, the body thetan stuff, the uh, new era Dianetics for OT specifically, that whole band from OT5, 6, and 7. Apparently, he did an awful lot of work on that through auditing Hubbard and Hubbard sort of figuring things out and him figuring things out or whatever. You can see his lectures. I've not bothered to watch David Mayo's lectures or read too much into the stuff he's written because... As you guys know, I think Scientology is a bunch of crap, and so I don't, I'm not looking for justification or reasons why Scientology is a good thing or would be a good thing or made sense if you do it this way. I'm not, you know, I, I just don't, I don't go there. Um, I, you know, yes, there are things in Scientology that are useful and helpful and all that, but the structure and framework of it is so destructive and so mind-altering and bending and deceptive that I just, I don't want anybody going anywhere near it. And if I, you know, so this is why I have to take great pains to say, I'm not endorsing it, you know, don't do it, please stay away, you know. But at the same time, of course, if you want to find out about it, read a book. If you want to know what auditing is, fine, go find an independent Scientologist and get a session. But it's not going to help you. It's it's a destructive activity. So anyway, as far as all, all those disclaimers aside, Mayo was somebody who developed an awful lot of Scientology when he was around in there, and he had his hands on all kinds of things because his post, his position in Scientology was Senior Case Supervisor International. And that position was the guy who was overseeing all of the technical application of Scientology all over the world. And when Hubbard was still around, the tech was not finalized. You could change stuff. You could move stuff around. You could write new bulletins, revise things all over the place. And Mayo was somebody who did that with and under Hubbard's direction. So that's basically who the guy was, as I understand it. And, um, and you can look him up, like I said, and get that whole story of a squirrel and get the whole rundown on it. He was in for many, many years. He was a key figure in Scientology's history. Key. He, he had a lot to do with the development of, of the OT level stuff. So he is somebody to know about and pay attention to if you're a Scientology watcher. And that's the brief rundown I can give on you today from off the top of my head. Sophia Korea. How can we keep in communication with someone that has joined the Sea Org? Recently, a friend of mine was recruited and moved from Europe to LA. 
I had no idea what the Sea Org was all about and how strict it could be until I lost my friend to it. In the meantime, he has deleted all his social media accounts, including WhatsApp and possibly his email address. There is no way I can reach out to him directly. I'm really sad that this is happening, mainly because I'm sure I haven't said anything to be considered an SP, and I know he would never vanish like this in his sane mind. The last time I heard from him, he called me saying he was still in quarantine studying and his EPF was about to start. I understand they have no time to be on their cell phone, but damn, vanishing like that? I decided to write him a letter, but I have no guarantees that they are going to deliver it to him. I kept it light, but maybe my feelings for him showed up a little. I wrote on a postcard some positive news that I missed his smile and that he would always be welcomed where I live. Do they also censor this type of communication? All right, Sophia, thank you. And I don't know what they do and don't censor because it depends on the organization and the place and who's doing it and what mood they're in that day. It's very arbitrary. It's not like there's any written policy on this anywhere that anybody's rigorously following. So your letters have a very good chance of reaching your friend, and I hope that they do. And you should continue to write to him and encourage him to write you back and be in communication. A lot of Sea Org are now using Signal app, and so if you might find him eventually there, and you might look for him there. If he's going to get a cell phone in the Sea Org, and if he's going to be on a messaging app, apparently that's the one that they're on. So you might check that out. Um, otherwise, you know, again, postcards and letters are perfectly fine. The Sea Org is a cloistered bubble world, and they very, very do they do police. External influences. Catherine and I talked about this, right? This is a thing. And so, um, so they are watchful for anybody who is potentially distracting or attempting to drag out a Sea Org member. That's the kind of thing they're most watching for. But as firms of friends, family, writing, stuff like that, they are, they'll, they'll probably let that kind of thing through. But Fingers crossed because, I, you know, I, I've been out for 10 years. I don't know what the culture there is right now in terms of that. But I know that it's um, generally speaking, you could get away with that. And I hope you do. And like I said, this is the kind of thing that you do want to encourage. So if there's a problem with reaching the person or something, don't write them a distempered letter than chewing them out or something like that. That's definitely going to get censored. Uh, you want to keep it, you know, good roads, everything's great, just maintain the communication. And that's really the best, the absolute best that you can hope for with somebody who's in the Sea Org, because it is a totalist environment and they do come down pretty hard on these guys as far as uh, having outside comm lines, they call it communication lines, right? They do discourage it for the most part, the culture does. But again, that's, no, that's not to say that you shouldn't try or that you won't succeed in writing him or maintaining communication with him. You should always make the effort. So I don't know. I know that's a little unclear as an answer. I'm sorry I can't be more specific, but I don't even know where this guy's at. He could be at Clearwater. He can be in, in L.A. He could be in Australia for all I know. I, I have no idea. So I don't know how to answer your question with any kind of certainty or authority. I can just encourage you to keep trying to stay in communication with the guy and because um, at the end of the day, that's better than nothing at all. And uh, there you go. Stephanie, I was wondering if you could include some content that compares and contrasts the methods, emotional needs, and overall experiences between Oh No, Ross and Carrie and their approach versus Midnight Mormon's attempt at joining the Church of Scientology. 
They both had the same premise of walking in and giving it a try, but there were two totally different outcomes. Thanks for this, Stephanie. And clearly, Ross and Carrie are people that I respect and admire and have worked with, and they come at things that they approach with a professional attitude, a skeptical attitude, a questioning attitude, and they go in all ears, all eyes, wide open, like, just show me what you got. Show me your process. Show me your procedure. Show me what's going on here. Let me, let me do this as though I am somebody coming in and actually taking part, and it's, a, it's an immersion activity. What the Midnight Mormons did was they heard that Scientologists are being ridiculed by critics, and they are apologists for the Mormons. They're Mormon apologists. That's their job. And they, and they consider that the Mormon church is wonderful, although it's got certain problems with certain people. Apparently, they're slightly critical of certain aspects of the Mormon church, but they're much, much, much more critical of people who are ex-members or who are skeptical or critical of Mormonism. And so they heard that there were people just like that in Scientology, that they're, they're the critics of Scientology probably gets a bad rap, just like Mormonism does. Let's go check it out and see. So their bias walking in was that Scientology was a good bunch of guys, and they were going to be there to show that and prove it. And that is a completely different approach and mindset to what Ross and Carrie did. So right off the bat, you have two people, you know, two sets of people walking through Scientology's doors with entirely different headspaces and entirely on different missions. Ross and Carrie were objectively going in and looking and seeing and experiencing and reporting on what happened. And when they reported on what happened, they give, you know, exact details. We did this. We did this. They said this. We said this. They said that. Here's what happened. Here's what happened in the sessions. Here's what happened in the, you know, we tried to do the sauna. We did this, that, the other thing. Uh, you know, the Midnight Mormons guys went in for, a, you know, two or three hour chat, confirmed what they already knew, and then left. And then pretended uh, to do a show where they talked in, you know, that, that they thought that this was what Scientology is. And here's our experience of it. And isn't this so wonderful? And... You know, of course, you can see from the way I'm talking about this that I had absolutely no respect whatsoever uh, for how the Midnight Mormons dealt with that, right? Because it's just that they, they brought no degree of skepticism or even questioning to the situation. They went in knowing exactly what it was, they confirmed they were right, and then they left. They didn't learn anything. And that's the difference. And it's a huge difference, right? Their needs were met. It, speaking on this from the emotional needs plane, right, or, fat, or lens, the Midnight Mormons went in there needing Scientology to be akin to what they were doing, to Mormonism. And so that's what drove them, right? Ross and Carrie had no such emotional attachment. Their whole shtick is go in and find out and don't be emotionally attached. Don't make up your mind before you walk in. See what's there, experience it, and then report on it, right? So very, very, very different approaches. And um, yeah, and that's why you saw such vast difference. And that's also, of course, why you see me relate to these different groups so differently. So there you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Jason Reese. Do you have an opinion about the Self-Realization Fellowship? 
Uh, not really. It's a place that's right next door to the PAC base in Los Angeles, the Sea Org base where I lived for so many years. And not once did I walk into their building. I only walked past it about a million thousand times. But I never walked in. And as far as I could tell, it was, you know, some Indian guru thing, uh, Americanized for, you know, American audiences. And uh, I don't really know what else to tell you about that. Sorry. Jim Gattel. Chris, are you familiar with Christian science? How is it similar or different than Scientology? I am vaguely familiar off the top of my head with the principles of Christian science. It's Mary Baker Eddy's uh, cult. It is a Christian-based cult. It has the idea that uh, medicine isn't so great and you can uh, pray. I, as I understand it, they don't do blood transfusions or something, if I understand it right, the Christian scientists. Again, I didn't even look up anything. This is all just off the top of my head. But um, they are not at all related to, in any way, Scientology. But I do believe that there is a connection in belief, uh, not because they're connected, but because, you know, they both come out of the tradition of 19th century spiritualism and mysticism and the occult. And, and Mary Baker Eddy was, was, you know, melding this kind of thinking with Christianity Hubbard was doing no such thing. Hubbard was very much purely on an occult track. So um, that's, that's my flash answer on that one. Sam Jones. Images of volcanoes are everywhere in Scientology. What are the pre-OT3 Scientologists told of their significance? This, the Dianetics book is where a volcano is uh, actually most prominently featured. It doesn't really appear anywhere else in Scientology in terms of symbolism. Um, there is the Dianetic symbol, which is a pyramid of four stripes, but that's just, that's mostly based on the triangle, which has a lot of occult significance for Hubbard, uh, more so than a than a volcano. It's not supposed to be a volcano. Uh, the volcano thing came later with the OT3 stuff when Hubbard then re had everything revamped. And as far as uh, Scientologists are concerned, the volcano is just discovery oh my god it's a it's a blast that everybody needs to know about look at this news you know kind of thing that's the significance of the volcano it's not it doesn't have any sort of scientology track whole track history you know historical significance that doesn't come till you get to ot3 okay guys so that is our show for this week thank you very much for coming around and watching me blabber on here i very much appreciated the questions please keep sending them i will keep adding them to my queue it is, I have never been able to catch up on this queue, uh, but I am going to keep making the effort at getting through it. So you guys just keep uh, the questions coming. All right, I'll see you guys next week. A quick plug, of course, for Patreon and all that. Uh, please do support the channel. All right, see you next week. Bye-bye.